Hello, this is Bella for On Reading. Our reasons for reading are as varied as our personalities. The On Reading podcast talks to people about the books they've loved in their life and the reasons why. Hello and welcome to the On Reading podcast, where today my special guest is children's author Candy Gourlay. Hello, Candy. Hello. You write on your blog that you like to say that you wanted to become a writer from the moment you were born. I don't remember saying that I wanted to. <laughs> you did, I promise you. <laughs> did I? I well, I think, I think it's, it was learning to read that made me want to write, discovering story. But it's all I, rem- I remember, only wanting to become a writer and a writer of children's books as well. What was I saying on my... <laughs> You'll have to go and read this. I'll have to go and read my website. website. Oh, yeah. dear. <laughs> I thought that was really lovely, though. So it has been something that has been with you since it's you all remember. Been, it's one of my formative experiences to this day I remember that moment was opening a book and realising that the words came together and told me a story. And the hairs on my arms, you know, rose. And I was just so full of amazement and I still remember that moment, opening that book and realizing it's telling me a story. Mm. And um, that made me think oh, that's all I wanted to be was to write stories for children because I want children to feel that way when they, you know, the way I felt when I discovered stories. Yeah. For the first. I learned to read maybe when I was five or six. So that was that. The moment was then. Mm. And I tell this story when I go to schools. I always tell the story of going and visit, um, you know, in the Philippines. We didn't go away on holiday during the school holidays, I'd be sent to spend time at my grandma's house. My grandmother would meet us at the door and say, Candy, you can play anywhere in the house, but do not go into my bedroom. So the moment her back was turned, I went into her bedroom. And her room was filled with books because my mother, my grandmother um, was not allowed to go to school as a teenager because she was a girl. And so she was always like into educating herself. She, she thought reading was the way. And so she she read a lot, and I found this book, and I opened the book, and that was when it happened. Wow. And do you remember what the book was? Yes, I have I have the book. I so slowly over time, I have smuggled this really old books back to England from the Philippines, <laughs> and they're all water stained because they've been flood ruined by flood and everything. But I keep them because they're so precious. Mm. Um, and this it was a a girls' mystery series from the 1930s or 1940s, called Beverly Gray's Mysteries. And that yeah. set you off? That set me off. I couldn't stop reading from that mm. moment. And apart from at your grandmother's, were there books around at home? My mother my mother was a big reader, um, but the, we didn't have that many books. There weren't that many bookstores in Manila in those days. So it was when I went to school that I discovered this. there was such a thing as a school library. There were no public libraries. The way we bought books was a door-to-door salesman would come by every so many weeks and he would have this collection of the Reader's Digest, a uh, collection of thrillers or uh, the jun- the Collins Junior Classics. And we bought those. We, my, my dad bought, thankfully, bought a lot of these things. And, and that's how I read. I read like uh, compilations of the most recent children's books published in America and that kind of thing. So I was quite up to date with the you know, it was the 1960s, and I was up to date with the 1950s books, because these <laughs> collections of books, and I worked my way through the library, reading everything I could. Always with this ambition further ahead to write. You know, I had that ambition, but I didn't believe, I didn't believe that I could do it. 
Um, so I thought I would become an artist and uh, make comics because I thought comics must be easier. So I drew a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I would draw my stories. Uh, my family, we, there are six brothers and sisters, and we all loved to draw. So we would just sit around the table all day. And my mother would buy reams of manila paper, which are brown, cheap brown paper, and then we just draw and draw. And I didn't, and the other thing that didn't make that made me think that I couldn't write then was all of these books were imported from America and from England. I mean, I tell this story over and over again. I'm worried that the audience has already heard me say it. But I, <laughs> so all, the it books, all the books that, I've, that I ever read when I was a kid and fell in love with came from, uh, from England and from America. And all the characters that I loved were pink-skinned and blonde and lived in beautiful brick houses and had green lawns and white picket fences. And I lived in a place called Cubao in the Philippines, which is like in the middle of a slum, uh, filled with traffic and people selling, vending food in the streets. And none of that ever appeared between the pages of a book. So like a lot of children who were like me, like a lot of children of color maybe here who don't see themselves in books, I thought maybe Filipinos were not allowed to be in books. In fact, even when I became, when I decided that I will become an author, I didn't write uh, characters like me. My characters were all uh, pink-skinned, blonde, blonde children in North London. And I thought the market wanted white characters in Western environments. If I would, I would have less chance of getting published if I wrote a character who came from my own background. So, so Tall Story, my debut novel, which was published by David Fickling Books, was actually the third book I had written with a Filipino context. You know, I, I really believe that a lot that anyone who wants to write a story must have this scab that they want to scratch. Don't it's very hard to to open your heart and, mm. and allow people to look in. And the first book that I wrote was quite quite emotionally um, painful for me because it was about a, a girl and boy who were left behind by their father, which was a very traumatic experience that I had. Um, my father left us to go and work abroad. And in the Philippines, we have this migration phenomenon where 11% of our population leaves the country to work abroad. So every 10, you know, if you see a classroom filled with kids, most of them will have experienced being left behind or knew someone who did or had a relative who had left their families behind. So it was such a common experience. And I was one of those children. And for my family, it was traumatic and um, devastating because mm -hmm. my father was the rock that held the family together. And my mother found it really, really hard to cope. Um, our house was foreclosed and we had to move out while my father was not in the country. Often the money couldn't come in. He worked in Libya during, and then there was a war and his money got locked up. And it was a very, very difficult time for the family. Mm -hmm. And I, I had to kind of step into my dad's shoes um, I learned to drive so I could drive the kids to school. I did the shopping, the marketing every day. I tried to help my mom with everything. We, we were a lot of children. When I was 16, there were two little, uh, two baby brothers to look after. And for me, you know, I know that it was a really hard time, but that was the best time because I love my baby brothers and I love little children. Um, and I used to stare into their eyes and think, wow, these are so, such wonderful creatures. Mind you, they did a lot of pooing. and you know, <laughs> I, So I, I, did, I did all of that 
but I didn't. I don't regret it at all. No. And you have chosen seven titles. Well, you haven't actually. You've chosen ten. Yeah, I was cheating. I think three Sorry, of them are going into one. <laughs> <laughs> so starting off with the first one, which I absolutely loved, and I'd read many of Amy Tan's books, but I hadn't read The Kitchen God's Wife. Well, it was the first Amy Tan book that I ever read. I had not read the joy any of the others at that stage, and I remember when I read it. I read it. My son, um, he was a very sick baby, so we spent a lot of time in the hospital. And he was at the UCH hospital. And we were in this really, really old ward, and he was struggling to breathe. And I was sitting next to this baby cot and all the other babies in the door in the ward. And I, was re- I read through the night, The Kitchen God's Wife. And I remember that how you know, you're filled with anxiety about your baby. And then you're reading this incredibly emotionally charged book. I was weeping at three o'clock in the morning and I, I couldn't sleep because I was afraid something would happen. So I just kept reading. And he was at the UCH hospital. We were in this really, really old ward. And I think it's the first book where I said, yes, that's exactly how it feels. You know, they say uh, books are like windows and mirrors. Mm. Until that moment, all the books I ever read were windows. I was looking at fantasy lives, the fantasy mm-hmm. life that of a Western person. So, you know, I'm, I, I was, I'm not a Western person. I grew up in a completely different culture. Amy Tan's book described what it's like to be, a, to be, to be me. Well, she's this Western, this child who grew up in America with this mother who is culturally really, really different from her. And that's how it feels to be with a Filipino mom. Mm. Um, and often I'll have conversations with other Asian people and say, have you read Amy Tan? You see the Chinese mom in that book. Doesn't that remind <laughs> you of your mom? <laughs> Will you read the uh, first line? First line. Yeah, just read it because that that explains everything. I think. Whenever my mother talks to me, she begins the conversation as if we were already in the middle of an argument. <laughs> that <laughs> is that so perfect? true. I just, that is... When I started that, I thought, oh, and that reminds me of your writing as well. Gosh, that is such a compliment. I mean, I, I read Amy Tan and I think, oh, I've got a long way to go, don't oh, I? <laughs> no, I think it just it makes me feel small. Uh, uh, although it's Chinese, it's not the Philippines. Um, it's very, it, it captures the Asian-ness. And I, I marvel at that. All her books feel like conversations with her mother. And sometimes I feel like my books are, are the same way um, because of that kind of really, really powerful connection you, you have with, with your mother. And... and um, one of the things that really struck me about this book was it captures the Western part and the Eastern. And by the time I read it, I had been living in England for maybe two or three years. And the contrast between East and West is, well, from my, my experience, I'm sure there are other people have, people have other experiences. But growing up in the Philippines, you have this feeling, because we were not wealthy, you could not control your life. You lived under a dictatorship. Unlike here in the West, where people feel quite entitled they feel that they have so many choices and they can be the best of whatever they want. They can make choices. When you're in the Philippines, you feel like, well, I felt like I was making the best of what I had and that I didn't really have choices and that a lot of the good things that happen are down to luck. And it's really interesting in Amy Tan because she talks about luck mm-hmm. all the time, which seems to be a fundamental part of Chinese culture. And luck is something that you think about a lot when you have no power, which is how it feels to grow up in a dictatorship mm. and how it feels to grow up in a poor country and being one of the poor. Um, and then you come to somewhere like England, like I did, and suddenly you could 
you know, you could go to school, you could, you could be whoever you want to be, be the best person, mm -hmm. the best version of yourself. And that's quite a, that, she, she captures that, Amy mm -hmm. Tan captures that, where her daughter is this entitled moaning, you know, thinking about her, uh, thinking about her, her, her problems seems so first world compared to what her mother endured. And you, you, you see that I, on a daily basis, mm -hmm. I, I look at the world around me where I live now and think, wow, you know, how lucky I am mm -hmm. to get here because I managed to fulfill a dream that I thought would never happen. Kitchen God's Wife. Wow, yeah. wow. what a wonderful book. So your second book is a picture book, uh, The Five Chinese Brothers by Claire Houchet Bishop, illustrated by Kurt Wieser. The Five Chinese Brothers was published in 1938. And The Five Chinese Brothers is about five brothers who all look exactly alike and each one has a super superpower. So one Chinese brother can swallow the sea. One Chinese brother can stretch his legs. One Chinese brother has an iron neck. One Chinese brother can hold his breath indefinitely. And the best Chinese brother for me was the one who could swallow the sea. And he was the inciting event because um, one day he's sitting by the beach and little boy comes along and says, will you swallow the sea so that I can collect some uh, colorful seashells? And he gets persuaded to do this. So he swallows the sea. One of the best illustrations is of the, 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 that Chinese brother, bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you see the seabed and there's a shipwreck and there's seashells and there's fish. And the little boy is so delighted. He goes around collecting strange pebbles and fish and all these things. And he refuses to come back to the shore. And he lets it go. And the little boy disappears. And so he's arrested for the murder of that little boy. Oh. And the story goes on. So they try to chop his head off. The Chinese brother with the iron neck goes. They can't chop his head off. So they decide to uh, drown him. He goes on. So the, the brother who can stretch his legs is thrown into the sea. And he's head is bobbing above the water and never, never, he never drowns. But it was criticized for the violence. And in fact, if you look at the reviews on Amazon now, I looked yesterday, somebody puts up a warning saying, be careful, this is filled with violence. Uh -huh. And I guess there are certain people who will feel that that, that angle, that uh, it's too violent. Mm -hmm. I researched Kurt Wieser uh, yesterday because he's the one most criticized for the draw. It's in black and white, two, uh, two color, so there's blue and there's yellow, and the Chinese are all yellow skin. And, you know, like Amy Tan, this is a book where I saw myself, mm, mm. you know, and I didn't realize that the yellow skin was a bad thing. It's yellow, you know, now yellow face is like a really, really, mm. um, you know, people, they call it, they now have a name for it, they call it yellow face. Um, but I can't, I can't say that I hate this book, it's just... Um, I, I just I just really love this story. Mm -hmm. Your third book, Candy, is Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi, a graphic novel, which was wonderful. I absolutely loved this as well. It's fantastic. I mean, I had a lot to identify with in this mm -hmm. book. This girl who grows up in uh, during the the time of the Shah, and then suddenly they've got to wear veils, and from being liberal disco mm -hmm. dancing people, her parents had to be concerned had to hide their liberalness behind closed doors. Um, and the slow decline of, of Iran is very, it's, it's sad and it's tragic. And I, in fact, I have, I have um, small comics that I've done about, 
about my experience. I've had an interesting life, having lived through a dictatorship and mm. experienced the revolution that freed us from the dictatorship and moved to a new country. So many stories, but I forget all of them. And yeah. will you, if you look, read Persepolis. She doesn't go into the into the domestic detail. They're all kind of like ideas and um, the symbolic things mm. that represent what the hypocrisies and the uh, the things that happened to her. And it's um, a coming-of-age novel as well, so it's very yeah. much about her, her sexuality and, you know, falling in love and, yes. and, and growing up as well. Yeah, and, and the drawings, where it's just a black line. You know, what, what, one of the main things I love about it is the, the way she just... The, simp, the simplicity of the drawing um, mean, mean, means that you're not just looking at the drawings, then mm. the story is more powerful because it's just in black and white. There's that one which really sticks in my mind. I haven't read it. I read it ages ago now, but it was the spread where she's leaving for the first time to go to the West, and her mum. She, I think, she's turned round, and her father is just holding her mum, who's collapsed. Yes. And it's so simply drawn, and it's so beautifully. I mean, it's like artistic direction, isn't it? Um, it turned me. It it alerted me to this new uh, genre of of biographical um, graphic novels. Mm. That people are, uh, you know, and and but I I think Persepolis rises above all of them, mm. not just because of this. It's not just the the story itself, the content, which is powerful, uh, juxtaposed a lot of uh, contradictions and things about living being Ir- Iranian mm. that uh, really struck me because that's what if I were telling a story about the Philippines, I would have a lot to say mm. about things like that. Great. And your fourth book well, is more of a collection, so it's the stories of Hans Christian Andersen. Yes. Why have you chosen these? The thing about Hans Christian Andersen is uh, it's, he's so emotional. The, his writing is so emotional. Um, and it's uh, properly targeted at children. So he's not writing for adults. He's really writing for children. They're, they're fairy tales, but they have a kind of grain of truth in them that they, they take a, a contemporary situation and then they turn it into a parable or a fable mm. um, like the little match girl They're, the stories are melodramatic and tragic you know the little mermaid um, which is a very very dark dark mm. story mm. that she she yearns to have legs and falls in love with the inappropriate guy one of the things that I, I talked about when I when I was invited to talk about it at Dubai was how Filipino the storylines are they could very well be the storylines of a Filipino telenovela. And maybe the telenovelas are what we call our soap operas. And and somehow that kind of that kind of moves me. And mm. I have a bit of that Dubai event was they asked the panel to nominate the classic I think the classic author that people should read. And I nominated Hans Christian Andersen. Mm. Uh, because I had to nominate a Filipino author. <laughs> um, but, you know, you think about the wild swans and that, that, that girl who, Isabel, I think her name was, she loses her brothers. She doesn't know where they are. And then there are these wild swans, and it turns out her brothers have been turned into swans. She had to knit these jackets for every one of them. And while she's doing that, she has to remain silent. He does this thing of silencing mm-hmm. the hero, Hans Christian Andersen. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you um, mean by that? Well, I, it's very interesting to me because when you, when you arrive in a... Uh, so when I wrote Shine, uh, I have a character there who cannot speak. And the reason I had a character who cannot speak was because when I started thinking of the idea, 
I was channeling the time when I first arrived in England and I thought I knew how to speak English. I knew that I thought that I would be understood. And suddenly I didn't understand anyone and nobody understood me because I didn't have the vocabulary of the and it was because of being in a foreign country where you can't speak the language. I kind of channeled that into mm. this girl who cannot speak, who cannot say what is in her heart. You know, you you might be you might be able to communicate the most basic things, but you cannot say what you really, really feel because you don't have enough words mm. to say it. And it's very interesting that that Hans Christian Andersen does that to his, you know, the little mermaid, the the wild swans. You know, he has these characters who are struck mm. dumb. And they have to remain silent in order to achieve a goal. Anyway, that that's uh, so Hans Christian Andersen. And did you read those as a child, or are they something that I read them as I have? This is one of the books that I stole from the Philippines. This is one of the <laughs> door-to-door salesman books. It is all wow, it's all torn. Well yes. worn. And I remember as a child just reading this from cover to cover, and then starting again mm-hmm. at the beginning. Moving on to your fifth book. Um, Over the Edge of the World, Magellan's Terrifying Circumnavigation of the Globe by Lawrence Bergreen. I thought we should have some non-fiction. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it is an amazing book. I mean, maybe it's, you know, there's a book for everyone, but for me, this is the non-fiction book for me. Because I grew up with a certain story about who I was, where I came from. This is the story of, you say Magellan, we say Magellan. You say Magellan, <laughs> you say Magellan in the Philippines. So it's, it's all about Magellan, who is a, uh, a Portuguese explorer who was employed by the, Spanish king, uh, by the Spanish crown to find a way to get to the other side of the world, to Asia, without having to travel down the, through the Cape of Good Hope. This is during the ascendancy of Spain and Portugal. And they're fighting over, over territories. And so the Pope says, stop fighting. We'll divide the world between the two of you. And he draws a line in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and says, okay, Spain, you can have the, the territory to the left, and Portugal, you can have the territory to the right. The territory to the left included um, North America, but at the time they had not discovered what happened. They didn't know what was on the other side of North America. And Queen of Spain sent Magellan across the Atlantic Ocean to find out what was on the other side. And it's the most horrendous journey. He thought that there would be a passage of what we now know as Patagonia. And he didn't know where he was going. He was traveling through Arctic Ocean. And then he discovers the Pacific Ocean. And he thinks, I've arrived. We're going to be in Japan in a few days. And in fact, the Pacific Ocean tripled the size of the Atlantic Mm -hmm. Ocean. And they sail and they sail and they sail. And if they had just edged a little bit north, they would have discovered Hawaii. If they'd gone a little bit south, they would have discovered some more Pacific Islands, but they didn't. And they sailed and they sailed and they were dying. They were eating the ropes because the ropes were made of, uh, with a kind of animal, bound with animal um, fat. And they were, they were people were dying, hundred, more than a hundred men died. And then they land in the Philippines. And the thing about Magellan was he had a, he had a slave who traveled everywhere with him. He bought that slave somewhere in Malaysia when he was... Um, raping and pillaging with the rest of the Portuguese. Um, And that slave traveled with him. And when they arrived in the Philippines, lo and behold, he could speak the language, Mm. which is Visayan. It's like a a language spoken in only certain islands in the Philippines. So that guy came from the Philippines, that slave. And um, 
unfortunately. So Magellan suddenly had power. He arrives in the Philippines, suddenly has power. He can, he can convert them to Catholicism. He kind of be begins to act like a jerk because suddenly, after all this terrible time, he suddenly feels powerful. And the result of that is he ends up dead. He gets mm. killed by the natives. Magellan is known to be the first man to circumnavigate the world. But if his slave, if his slave could speak the language, then he must have come from those islands. And if he came from those islands, who was the first man to circumnavigate the world? Enrique. Enrique, who was a Filipino. The thing that, you know, Europeans act as if once they discover that a, a place in Asia, suddenly That's, everything, it activates. It's like this place no is frozen, in frozen, um, frozen, and then when they're discovered, they suddenly... Actually, that area was really bustling, really busy. The Chinese were, were trading. When Spanish explorers explored the rest of the Philippines, um, they were attacked by Filipinos with blunderbusses, with guns which they bought from Japan. They were all in the mix. They were all, they all knew where everything was. They were looking for spices that would make European food taste better. Mm. Because it was bland. <laughs> it was bland and also it was off. <laughs> because they were eating all of this meat that they were keeping to the winter. So I love that. I love that book because it really opened my eyes to that, the way that world, the, that world works. And also it got, I got to know Magellan a bit better. Mm. Magellan is a figure who... Uh, we all know in the Philippines, our history books in the Philippines all begin from the moment Magellan lands in the Philippines. Yeah. It's as if we didn't exist before. I mean, there are little chapters about pre, pre-colonial Philippines, but, but everything begins with Magellan. Mm. The reason I read the book when I was researching Bone Talk, oh, okay. because uh, I was trying to write about this tribal people and there was nothing about them. And so I was researching tribal people in the Philippines. And this, all these accounts are written by Westerners. And they're very, very unsympathetic. You know, we basically, we just look like really dumb, really dumb, primitive people. And actually, it's more complicated mm. than that. And one of the most sympathetic pieces that I read was the diary of Antonio Pigafetta, who traveled with Magellan. And so when I read that diary, which you can get on the internet, I tried to read more about the story of Magellan's voyage and stumbled upon this book. Mm -hmm. And every all Filipinos should read it because uh, we just memorized Magellan mm -hmm. discovered the Philippines in 1521. And actually knowing it tells us what the context of Magellan's journey about the world, the way it was in those days. And mm -hmm. um, your next book, You Cheated, and you have chosen four. So tell me about this collection. What was it about? Okay, I've got Millions by Frank Cottrell Boyce, which is about a boy who finds a bag filled with millions of pounds. And it's in an imaginary time when England is about to join the euro. So the, the pound is going to be phased out, which is kind of really, now that Brexit is happening, it's kind of funny to think <laughs> about it. But basically, because the pound is about to join the euro, they have to spend the money as fast as they can. And it's hilarious and beautiful and amazing. Um, um, Bud Not Buddies, one of my favorite books from America by Christopher Paul Curtis. And it's about this boy who is, um, who during the, the Depression, his mom has died and he thinks his dad is this famous jazz singer. And he's this little boy traveling along the road, finding his dad. And it's really, really mm -hmm. funny as well. And um, Holes by Lewis Sackar is probably known by a lot of people about a boy who is jailed for a crime that he did not commit. It's amazing. It's got 
fantastic structure. And uh, Walk Two Moons by Sharon Creech is about uh, it's like like holes. It has a dual storyline, and all of these books actually share certain qualities. Um, I I love them all together because they were the books that when I was trying to get published were the books that I would have wanted to write. Mm. They're perfectly pitched for the age group that I want to write for. They do really adventurous things, like Holes has a dual story structure, and it goes back and forth in time, and yet it's so simply written. That simplicity, the short sentences, I just loved it. Walk Two Moons is the same, but Walk Two Moons is a different, so it has two story storylines that go in and out and meet each other. Mm. But at the same time, it has this storytelling thing where the characters tell stories as they go, and I just, I just love the, I just love the way these books are made. Not just the stories themselves, which are amazing, but the way they're crafted. And I've read these books over and over again, mm. thinking this is how mm. the challenge of writing for that age group and not being confusing, mm-hmm. the challenge of writing evocatively and lyrically. And yet, simply and with and, humor, which is and with humor, continue. yeah, and the hu- all of them are mm. funny, mm. and that's how that's the author I want to be, and that's why I've lumped all of these books together, and um, mm. they all share common themes, which they all are about loss. I only realized last night when I was like, oh, I better talk about what the common themes of these <laughs> books are, um, and there are millions. It's about uh, uh, the boy the has boy lost, lost his, his mom, mother, yeah. yeah, and then um, Bud, not Buddy, he's lost his mom. Um, holes, he's, uh, he's, they're lost boys. Um, and walk two moons, she's also lost mm-hmm. her mom. But what does that mean? <laughs> and then there's the kitchen gods. God, mom, mom. Yeah. God, I hope my mom's not listening. Mom, don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it. I think what it is is one of my um, big emotional things. The thing that I could, that that uh, defines me as someone who lives here in England is I'm always. Homesick. Yeah. So that kind of family loss is always mm. that's always in my story. A part of your world. It's always a part yeah. of my world. It will never not be because yeah. I don't live where my family is. Your final book is Not the End of the World by Geraldine McCochran. But I chose Not the End of the World because it really, uh, when I read it, it really affected me on so many levels. Um, can I read something from yes, it? Please. I actually typed the at the beginning. Timna, the heroine, says. A daughter is not the same blessing as a son, after all. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons of Noah, are the only ones who will be mentioned a hundred years from now when people tell our story. I know I won't figure. And that really, really struck me. You think about all the women through history who are forgotten and not mentioned. The stories of men is what our history is all about. Geraldine McCochran, the thing about her for me I don't lump her with the others because I think it's unattainable. <laughs> it's unattainable. That level of the quality of her writing is just... Um, n- nobody has that brain mm. who can do that. She starts with a tsunami. And at the time when I read this, Manila was underwater, like right up to the, right up to the telegraph poles, to the wires. Um, and when the water came down, you could see all the animals hanging from it. It was so awful. My brother's house was inundated. He was swimming in his kitchen. I mean, it was really, really terrible. So I could imagine, mm. you know, I could imagine this really happening. And then Timna is watching all of these and wondering and asking a lot of questions, asking a lot of questions about faith 
and belief. If God is a just God, why are we allowing these people to die? Why would he do this to us? I always had a lot of questions about our faith. I once asked my, my teacher, sister, I went to a convent school, I asked her, so you mean that all of those Hindus in India and Muslims in the Middle East, you know, all those millions of people who are not Catholics are going to go to hell? And she said, yeah, really bothered me mm. because how could people who don't even know about Catholicism go to hell? Yeah. And um, the thing about Geraldine McCochran is she's, she's all shades of gray. Nothing is, nothing is black and white. I, I read this book over and over again. Mm. It's, it's amazing. And I separated it from the others because it's truly a masterpiece. Mm. It's just a, it's a masterpiece. It's listening now. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, in this podcast, We've been talking, obviously, about your reading. What, what does reading mean for you now? Reading is, is really difficult for me now because after I became a writer and began, began to understand the processes and um, the structures of story, I've become really critical. So in the past, I was uncritical. and I, I would read because of the story or just lose myself in a story. And now I can't, I can't do that with every book. Every book is like, okay, this is going to go, I know that character's going to die, that character's going to die. Uh, oh, great, nice, interesting structure, but why did they do that? And, you know, it's become kind of technical. Mm. So, I, so it's got to be a really, really great book for me to lose myself in it. And I, I'm always searching for that book. Mm. I'm searching for, constantly searching, and you know what? There are a lot of them. And how often do you find them? Do you uh, maybe in a month I would find one or two. Mm. And you yeah. read a lot, I read a lot. Two or three books a week. Wow. What's interesting is that you read so much, but your voice is so unique. I mean, I, I wouldn't ever... I mean, apart from the only time where the, sometimes the voice, I could just... Because it's so immediate. Um, I can't... Your voice is so individual as a writer. And I know you'll laugh at me because I'm saying about voice and what is voice. But it is. And yet there is no sense of influence from other writers oh, that's good I, mean, I disguise great. it well yeah you disguise it very well people always talk about voice and saying it's it's about you know agents will say i'm looking for a voice a unique voice and what is a unique voice but just the author finding their character because a voice becomes unique mm. when the character begins to live actually i i write a lot i as you know as my editor i have a lot of versions of the book mm. and i write and i write and maybe you, you don't see the earlier ones where the character isn't there yet. Where I, I write and write and write until it feels like the character has come mm. to life and that the character is the one leading the story. And so then it's I an know, authenticity. It's an authenticity. It's like the, um, it's like uh, the difference between reporting and being in the moment. Mm. So, at the beginning of beginning a, a book, you're 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 still reporting what the story is. So the character is still reporting and reporting, reporting. Well, this is what's going to happen to me and. The, and then uh, something happens. It's always a moment for me where the character turns and suddenly the character's talking by, its, by, by himself, himself or herself. You know, so many armpits, so little deodorant. You know, that came to me. And suddenly that character in, in Tall Story, uh, my character Andy, just suddenly said that. The moment she said that, I could write all of her chapters. Thank you so much, Candy, for being a guest on our podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to you. You're very welcome. I hope you edit out all my mistakes. <laughs> is your battery working? Is it, it is. It's testing, still on. testing. Okay. <laughs> Beyond Reading podcast is produced by Will, Clementine, and Bella. For more information about the podcast, our guests, and the books we've talked about, please visit onreading.co.uk.